The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the saviour of the world. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come into this place this morning, as we open our minds and our hearts to hear these words, we recognize that some of us come because our confidence in you as Lord and Savior is rock solid, and we come here trusting and believing. But we also recognize that some of us come here and have no idea what it means that you are Savior. What is it that you save us from? How is it that you save us in this world of sorrows and tumult? How is it that you are saving us? We ask, O oh God, by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to hear, to understand, and to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe, but it's been about close to eight years since we, our family moved uh, to this beautiful city. And uh, for the first couple of years, I remember that we went without a car. We just, I don't know why. We just, uh, we went without a car. And lest you think, um, you know, this is some kind of, you know, signal of virtue, a commitment to a life of simplicity, let me hasten to add that the first year was kind of cool, but the second year was just downright dumb <laughs> and kind of lame. Because what we found was that, you know, the, the plan was, well, this is a city where we can get around pretty easily with public transit and if we ever really need a car, you know, we can always get a zip car. That was the plan. But we found that, you know, we really found ourselves reserving those zip car days for really special occasions, right? So uh, often, or once in a while, it would be to, um, to run down to H Mart in San Jose every couple of months, or to make a trip to Ikea. Um, and it was about well into our second year that we finally said, you know, we ought to go up to Twin Peaks and to get a view of the city from, you know, from up there because we had, well, heard great things about it. I, I grew up coming up to, uh, to the Bay Area from, uh, from L.A. and knew about that experience, but the family hadn't. And so we picked one Saturday morning. It was a, you know, a, a beautiful, what seemed to be a beautiful morning in our part of town. And um, we got the zip car and we went up. We went up, and you know, something told me as we were making our way up that hill that something was a little off. And it wasn't until we got to the very top, we got out of our, out of our cars, and you know, the boys piled out, and we were all excited. We realized what the problem was. The problem was Carl the Fog. We could barely see like 10 feet in front of us. I felt foolish. Um, the family wasn't so happy. And uh, the only thing that helped kind of was right after us, as we were about to um, go back, a huge, a humongous tour bus drove up. And all these tourists piled out of the car, and it made me feel a little bit better. Um, The reason I share this story is because I think as we come to a story like this one that we find in the Gospel of John, there's a kind of a thick fog that rests over this story. Because we have so many presuppositions, at least some of us, who are familiar with this story, who have heard sermons on this story. You know, I didn't pick the passage for this Sunday. I think this might be my actually second or third, no, third or fourth time preaching on this text in this church. 
Okay? I think the previous ones kind of stand the test of time, but we're always learning, always growing. There's more that we see in these texts. And it's hard to, to understand or to hear the truth or the message of a story like this because, you know, we take these, we, there are these little details out of which we extrapolate meaning and interpretation and application. So let me give you a few examples. You know, on the very, very slender evidence of her going out to draw water at noon, we come to all kinds of conclusions, don't we? Or at least preachers do. Theologians do. And as people of faith, we hear these stories and we think, oh, this was a horrible woman because she, she didn't want to be around other women. She was an outcast. There must have been something deficient in her character. To have such a mundane detail extrapolated into so much meaning, you know, that she's an outcast. That's one option. Another option was that it happened to be noon and she was thirsty. Right? Or that a member of her family was thirsty. You know, this past week, I found myself going to the grocery store around noon. Now, it's possible some of you might, you know, maybe, you know, someone saw me and they saw off in the distance Peter going to the grocery store and, and they might have jumped to a conclusion. Oh, there goes that guy, you know, uh, supposedly working in the middle of the day, slacking off, right? Um, going, going out to the grocery store for refills of beer, ice cream, and potato chips. That could have been one possible interpretation. You would have been wrong. That's one possible interpretation. Another possible interpretation might have been simply that I had been working really hard that morning, and uh, I realized it was lunchtime, and we were out of milk and, um, and bread and lunch meat. Right? Two very different interpretations. Or what about the fact that she had had five husbands? Again, we take this little detail, and we, we pour all kinds of assumptions into the moral character or the the lack of moral character in this woman. See, there's a couple different interpretive paths. One path is to say, oh, she was a harlot, right? She was, she was not a good person. Or another interpretation was, oh, here's someone who's had a string, you know, a trail of just misfortune, unfortunate events happen in her life. Tragedy struck multiple times. Or that she was a victim of injustice and perhaps abuse. In fact, for many in this time, that may have been a more likely conclusion to draw. And so my invitation to you as we reflect on this text is, let us strain to see better. With humility to acknowledge our limitations but also trusting that the text speaks, okay? You see, I believe that there is a truth to be gleaned and to be understood from this text. We're not trying to, this is not an exercise in saying there's no way we can come to any kind of firm conclusions based on the very distant details of this, a story like this. But the invitation this morning is let us try to do better, to listen more carefully, to see what it means 
to truly hear, to take in what this woman heard from Jesus. And I think if we did, at the very least, there's two things that we would um, hear about Jesus' intent, what, what Jesus is communicating here. There is a correction, and then there is an expansion. First of all, Jesus saves us from the horrible burden of having to be right all the time. We see it in this text, in this conversation, because the conversation, if you actually really pay attention to the details, it is a thrilling conversation. There's rapid fire back and forth between this woman and Jesus. And the contrast, if you're reading along in the book of John, the contrast is remarkable because right before this chapter, in a scene where Nicodemus comes under cover of night to Jesus to talk to him, it's, it's, it's a snore of a conversation. Because Jesus talks, and Nicodemus is basically stunned to silence and doesn't really say anything. And the conversation, there's a, because it's Jesus, there's a great deal of uh, wisdom and brilliance in what Jesus still says. But John chapter 4 is a remarkably different conversation. Do you realize there are 13 back and forths? This may be the most extensive conversation, the liveliest conversation, the most profound conversation that we have a record of in the New Testament. And it's a conversation between equals, between two people, okay, two individuals who are, who are sort of standing apart from each other, sizing each other up, but there's no, there's no you know, false sense of deference. It's just two strangers who are having, having at it, talking to each other, asking each other to, uh, uh, questions. And, and there's kind of a progression that happens. There's a, there's a progression that happens. You can almost, I can almost see you know, there's kind of a sense of humor. I mean, you can't read that line where, G, where the, the woman says to Jesus, uh, where do you get this water? You have no bucket. In fact, just a few minutes ago, you were asking me for water. What are you talking about? I can almost imagine maybe a smirk on her face, right? What, what do you mean you can give living water? Incredulous, but also wondering. And it reminds me of a, a time when I was a, a, a young graduate student studying history, and one of our professors had just published a book. This was supposed to be a groundbreaking book in the field of U.S. Uh, US history in a very particular or specific subfield that many historians had written about. And um, as often happens during events like this, there was a very prominent sort of a, a legend in the field that came as a speaker. And I think the job of this person was to come and to give some sense of credence or weight or uh, some sense of uh, the importance of this groundbreaking work that was being released. And I remember, you know, everyone got all dressed up. It was going to be this, this, this fancy event, this very uh, celebrative, uh, celebratory event. And um, the, this very distinguished scholar got up on the stage, spoke for about 30 minutes, and, you know, after a few perfunctory words, uh, saying some positive things about the book, he, he went on for the remainder of his time to basically critique the book, 
to say, all, I think, seven or eight points on all the reasons why this book was not going to answer the questions or raise more questions and was just not up to snuff for the kinds of things that the book was trying to do. And it was one of those really awkward moments where you realize now family members of this professor and his students are all there. The department is there. It's supposed to be this really grand event. And we're all feeling a little awkward. At least I was. I was thinking, my goodness, this is a disaster. And then uh, the professor gets up, and he's, got, he's beaming. He's got this big smile on his face. And, and he goes on point by point to dispute, right, and to push back on um, all the points that have been made by this very renowned scholar. And I realized somewhere in, in the middle of that back and forth, I realized, oh, what, what's happening here, what I'm witnessing is a, is a free and full conversation between equals. And the reason this person is so you know, beaming and got this big smile on his face is because this other person, this renowned scholar, a giant in the field, had done him the pleasure, the honor, right, of of conferring upon him the status of an equal conversation partner. And the reason this worked, frankly, was because the whole enterprise was not about who was right, right, who had the better books, who had the better arguments. The whole enterprise was about there is something, you know, in a part of our of our history as a nation that we're trying to understand or unpack and, and interpret, and the more minds we have doing this work, the better. And I, I remember walking away from that event thinking, oh, I could never imagine theologians having a conversation like that. Why? Because for theologians, I mean, not all theologians, but I, you know, I had happened to have gone to seminary as a theology student, my experience, okay, I'm sure that you know better theologians out there who are above this, but my experience of theologians was we have the right answer. And your job is to listen, to take notes, and to get the right answers and walk away smarter, holier, because you heard the right answer. This is a very different kind of conversation. And what, what, what you ought to notice in this text is that the woman, far from being insulted, is actually ecstatic, Right? You know, you say, you Jews say it's Jerusalem, but, but we believe it's Mount Gerizim. Which is it? And Jesus comes and says, it's neither. We're going get, to get into the details of that, but it's neither. And this woman is so enthralled and leans into this conversation, and she's being corrected by Jesus, but she loves it because she understands this is a conversation where it's not where she's trying to prove herself, prove her intellect, prove her correctness, prove her wisdom. She's simply trying to understand how it is that she can have a deeper experience of God. There is a freedom from having to be right in this text, in this story. Do you see it? There's a correction that Jesus offers to the sectarianism that is so rampant in this culture. And Jesus says it is neither Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. You know, it's about everybody coming to worship God. So that's the first point. There's a correction that happens, but then there's also an expansion. Because Jesus not only saves from 
this person from having to be right, but Jesus also saves the, the entire Samaritan village, really, from having to be alone. What do we mean by this? Well, the Samaritan people were a people who had been hard-pressed. They, they, geographically, they were on the northern uh, region of Israel. And what that meant was that they were much more vulnerable to, to foreign incursions. And as a result, also much more prone to mixing with other nations. And as a result, because of that, other Jews looked down upon them as being impure, impure of blood, impure of ethnos, impure of their ethnic and religious identity. So they, they were a people who were hard-pressed. And one of the ways that they responded was to say, well, we're going to, we're going to double down on our devotion to who it is that God has called us to be and our self-understanding of the truths that God has revealed to us. And they, they did this by um, having a very narrow view of Scripture, one would say. Well, they did this by having the same narrow view of Scripture that they felt was being inflicted upon them. You say it's Jerusalem. We say it's Mount Gerizim. So our response is, we're going to, you are building walls against us. We are going to build walls to protect ourselves. Do you see this? So these are the people who are hard-pressed, and because they were hard-pressed, they have hard edges. I wonder if you can relate. I wonder if you've ever had a, an experience where you went through something that was hard, and as a result, you felt a little bit raw. You felt like you had to have very clear or sharp boundaries that could not be crossed. As often happens, the religious system of the Samaritans that was forged in hardship had a kind of rigidity to it because they felt like there were threats all around them. Their rigidity was around the Pentateuch as the Torah. like That was going to be the entirety of Scripture for them, not, not all the other Hebrew Scriptures, but just the first five books, and also Mount Gerizim. That was the hill upon which they would die a very narrow and circumscribed spiritual vision. And Jesus comes and Jesus says, neither on Mount Gerizim, nor on, Mount, nor on Jerusalem, but those who worship in spirit and truth. What is Jesus doing there? What Jesus is doing is he's not saying that no place matters or that place does not matter. What he's actually saying is every place matters. Every place can be the site of worship and salvation for God's people. Bishop Yvette Flunder, who is a womanist preacher, scholar, theologian, uh, born in San Francisco, uh, ministers in Oakland, she says in one of her books this. She says, My history and experience is in African-American churches where many congregations and their leaders suffer from oppression sickness. Oppression sickness is a legacy of cultural oppression suffered by African Americans and passed down from generation to generation. Religious authorities with a history of rejection turn into oppressors by excluding and condemning those of whom they disapprove. I wonder if there was a little bit of oppression sickness present in the theology and the worldview and the belief system of the Samaritans. And what Jesus does 
is Jesus comes and he says, these walls that you have built up, they are for naught. We can tear these walls down. And here's the remarkable thing. Jesus does all of this work in the context of a deep, intimate conversation with this woman where he honors he honors her dignity. He honors her ability to have a back and forth with him. He honors her ability, her intelligence to be able to question, to be able to push, to be able to probe. And Jesus opens, you realize this is one of the very few passages in all of the Gospels where Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Do you know how rare that is? It's so rare that New Testament scholars have come up with the phrase, a term called the messianic secret, because more often than not, it seems Jesus is keen on hiding or holding back his messianic identity. But in this conversation, Jesus opens himself up in the fullness of his identity as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. You see, inside the correction he was offering her was an expansion. An expansion, a theological expansion, a spiritual expansion, and an invitation declaring that every place matters. You matter, but not just you. Every place matters. And here's the wonderful thing. By the end of this passage, in verse 42, you realize what the Samaritans say? Oh, we don't just believe because of what you said. We believe Jesus has spent two days with this in this village. And they say, we believe that Jesus, this person, is the savior of what? Samaria? No. Oh, this person is a savior of Israel. No. This person is the savior of the world. Do you, do you see what Jesus has done? He has torn down those walls and he has convinced these people that his salvation is for all the world. And so as we conclude, I just got a couple questions for you. What is the correction Jesus would offer to you in terms of how you view the world, in terms of the inherited theological systems with which you operate? What are the corrections to which Jesus would say, in this lies your salvation? And what is the expansion? What is the enlarged invitation to which Jesus would say, by embodying or understanding this way of seeing my work in the world, there is a greater invitation. There is a, an enlarged invitation, an expansion of your understanding of what God is doing in the world. Kasuke Koyama, the Japanese theologian, says this. He says, one of the one of the unfortunate characteristics of the Christian mission in Asia has been the presentation of the gospel in terms of a slogan, Jesus is the answer. In my own Japanese language, Jesus is the answer sounds extremely awkward, cheap, and superficial. In my culture, it would be understood as saying that Christianity works mechanically. Therefore, it has no spiritual dimension. And he goes on to talk about how important it is to understand the way of Jesus, spirituality in the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the religious worldview that Jesus constructs for us to follow, to be something that we embody and participate in. And he says this, instead, Jesus is inviting us to come and walk with him. What is the use of knowing the way if one does not walk on it. Too many Christians have been content 
to know the way and not walk the way. But part of what you begin to realize as you walk the way of Jesus is that it comes with a set of corrections about how we have viewed the world. But, and it also comes with a set with just so many different ways in which it expands our understanding of God's activity in the world. The Samaritans experienced salvation from having to be right. And they experienced salvation from a small view of the world. You know, they thought the way to respond to criticism and hostility was to respond with walls of their own. But they learned a different way from Jesus. A man they weren't even supposed to eat or drink with who stays with them for two days. He turns their world upside down, revealing himself as the savior of the world. And their provincial, narrow, small arguments for their own theological systems fade from view. You know, it's true that hurt people hurt people. But it's also true that people who have gone through horrendous experiences are open to a form of generosity that is unimaginable to folks who haven't. And I want to just conclude by reading an excerpt from a book by the brilliant Julie Rogers, who in a book called Out Love, a, Christian, a queer Christian survival story, my only quibble with that title might be that it might be better as a, maybe it might be more accurate to say it's a queer, a queer Christian salvation story. Um, but Julie probably wouldn't like that, right? Because she wants to preserve that element of, I think, battle and fight and survival. But I want to read for you a couple of, it's actually a couple of paragraphs, but I want you to just invite you to bear with me because I think this is such a wonderful way of understanding the salvation Jesus brings from having to be right and also from having to be alone. And um, she talks about her shift, one of the shifts in her life, going from being a chaplain at a pretty well-known Christian college, which was sort of a, a dream gig for so many people in, uh, in places like hers, to um, leaving that Christian college because of some doctrinal or belief system conflicts, and then going to, uh, to work in a restaurant. Uh, and I guess the restaurant was called Grange Hall, and she reflects in this way. She says, what a relief to report <clears throat> to my shifts at Grange Hall where it didn't matter what I believed or who I was attracted to or what I had done the night before. All I had to do was stock service stations and take out the trash. The juxtaposition between my former work and newfound freedom was vivid when I took out the trash one Saturday night. It was approaching midnight and it was late enough in autumn, or, uh, in autumn for freezing rain and snow. The trash bag from the bar was particularly heavy that night. All of the waste adds up. The half-eaten burgers, melted ice cream, leftover fruit from the bar, unfinished beers. It piles up and warms up, sloshing around until there's a collection of trash juice at the bottom of a bag that weighs more than many of us can lift in the weight room. My job was to dispose of that trash in the dumpster behind our building. So I tied up the bag, pulled it out of the can, and slung it over my right shoulder to carry it through the hallway and outside the back door. Normally, I held the lid 
of the dumpster up with my left hand and used my right arm to toss the trash bag into the bin. After several failed attempts to get the bag up over the top of the dumpster, I had to accept that I could not fling the trash bag into the bin with one hand. I pushed the lid over the back of the dumpster, visualizing this, right? She's pushing the lid over, grabbed the bag with one hand on top and one hand on the bottom, squatting down in front of the dumpster with both hands on the bag, I engaged my core to activate as many muscles as possible and exploded upward, thrusting the bag up onto the ledge of the dumpster. And then the bag ripped. The trash juice, milk, beer, soda, ketchup, melted ice cream burst from the bag onto me, drenching my clothes. And then she goes on to reflect a few sentences later. Even as I was covered in trash juice, remember she, had, she was, found herself in this predicament because she had left you know, a reputable job at a reputable institution. She says, even as I was covered in trash juice, I knew I had made the right call. I wasn't sorry. I wasn't wistful for the days when I was conditionally invited to walk the halls of power. To me, the trash juice dripping down my arms felt like freedom. And then she goes on to talk about how working in this restaurant, there were people that would just gravitate towards her. So there was um, Casey, the bartender, who had one day, one, at one point in his life thought about becoming a youth pastor until he discovered he was gay. Or Sam, the other aspiring bartender, um, who was estranged from his family, talks about all these conversations. And then this is, what, this is her concluding reflection in that chapter. The gatekeepers of evangelicalism said I was disqualified from formal service. They drew a line around their understanding of orthodoxy and purity and said I was on the other side of that line. But God was not confined to the boundaries they drew. I was still a chaplain. I love that. I just wasn't a chaplain who wore pressed shirts and dress shoes in the halls of power. Instead, I wore slip-free black sneakers and smelled like sweat and beer on the sticky restaurant floors, through clouds of smoke and back alleys. God drew near to people through my lesbian body. Dear friends, Jesus saves us from having to be right in matters we have no business adjudicating in the first place. And Jesus frees us from having to be alone behind walls of our own making. May you experience this beautiful, expansive, life-changing salvation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful story when you drew near to a woman whom so many in your religious system would have held at their distance, would have wanted to have nothing to do with. Instead, you drew near 
And you brought a kind of salvation that brought freedom and new life. And we ask, O oh God, that as we hear these words, that you would make this salvation ours as well for the good of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.